Welcome to the Farcast, coming to you every week with insiders and experts to give you insight into the changing economic world. And now, here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. March the 18th, 2021. I hope everyone enjoyed a wonderful St. Patrick's Day yesterday. Uh, it, was a, it was a lovely day, I've got to tell you, here in Naples, Florida. And I went to see my family, and, we, and we, um, my brother-in-law, Dan, Dan Lennon, of course, because uh, you've got to have an Irish brother-in-law like Dan Lennon, and my father. Uh, Harry Hulfar, of course. We sat and we watched the Society of the Friendly Sons of St. Patrick virtually last night from 6 until 7 p.m. And uh, it was a wonderful celebration. Gen- General Jim Jones, of course, was the head uh, uh, president of the Society of the Friendly Sons. And then, and then uh, our great owned P.J. O'Rourke uh, delivered our, uh, our annual address for this year. Uh, and he's always so funny. So it was a wonderful celebration. The rest of us, of course, listened to Jay Powell yesterday afternoon as he navigated the alligators to try and tell the country and the world that the United States has terrific growth, but not quite enough. Uh, They're watching rates closely, but they're not going to do anything about them. Stock prices can go up. We're going to have inflation, but none of that's going to be a problem. Stay in your seats. Keep smiles on your faces. Everything's going to be fine. And I thought yesterday, Jim Labenthal, that he had pulled it off until I looked at the 10-year this morning at 175, up another 10 basis points. Good morning, Jim Labenthal from Serity Partners, our great friend on the forecast. Please tell me what happened yesterday and what you're looking at this morning. Well, I, I think you nailed it. I, too, thought he had pulled it off. Uh, and then this morning I woke up and said, what, what, what the heck is going on here? Um, it, it, I think that this uh, story of higher interest rates and the negative effect that it's had on stocks, particularly technology growth stocks, I think it is long in the tooth. Um, you know, stories lose their punch after a while. And 175, you know, maybe the 10-year drifts up and gets to 2%. But let's face it, we're at 175. We're not at 0.75%, which is where we were four months ago. So let's consider that this has been an incredibly sharp move, uh, and it's based on inflation expectations. But let's also realize that, you know, we're far along in that process. And along the way, great companies, in the technology space, companies like Apple, uh, Amazon, uh, Facebook, have all come off by more than what's a technical correction. So, okay, we're going to wring our hands today. The markets are, the futures are down a little bit today, but I'm not really that worried at all. Um, Yes, we've got inflation cropping up. And I think, I think we're supposed to believe Chairman Powell, not because he's the chairman, but because it makes sense when he says inflation is likely to be transitory. I, too, independently of what Chairman Powell says, think that inflation is going to be transitory. Well, let me let me uh, tell you what about this doesn't make sense to me. This this new article that Jim Labenthal, uh, I mean, the, the, the new point that Jim Labenthal just made is that a lot of the tech stocks have been coming back because rates are rising. And a lot of them, because they're such growth companies, are very highly levered and, and somewhat rate sensitive. And right there, Jim, I've got a, a, I pause because... These stocks have been surging into the stratosphere for the last, certainly, year, but a couple of years before that. There hasn't been any real tie to fundamentals 
driving these stocks. There have been a lot of notional ideas that have been driving these stocks. Well, we've got a shutdown, and we do see some of them doing better, but we're, we're moving into a fang, everything's fabulous for tech's world. And I don't get now why people are suddenly saying, uh, actually, the fundamentals are changing. Well, when the hell did the fundamentals matter with these stocks? And, and aren't they still the concept stocks that are going to drive the future? I just don't buy that suddenly it's the rates I mean, I think there could be a very natural rotation out of a trade that was long in the tooth where the enthusiasm perhaps got overheated, might be coming down to something feeling more normal now. There's a rotation with all the cash out there. Some of that cash going into some other things that haven't performed. I just don't feel like it's rates. And, and, I'm, and I'm, I, I don't know that I believe the market when that's what the excuse they're using. Okay, so thank you, because I think you made my point that I was trying to make earlier, and you did it more eloquently than I did. Let's consider not the apples, not the fang stocks. Let's consider the hyper-growth stocks, Zoom, Peloton, uh, Shopify. Number Stuff one, without earnings. Exactly. Yeah. But they're great companies. I mean, they really are great companies. Yeah. If you dive into what they do, phenomenal companies. But here's my point. You go back nine months ago. The economy is shut down. We, re we have no vaccines on the horizon. And the story then was in a pandemic environment, in a shutdown economy, <clears throat> you will pay anything for companies that can grow their earnings. And guess what? Airlines and energy stocks aren't going to grow their earnings. So they are thrown out the window. That story has changed. That story changed four months ago when the yeah. Pfizer vaccine results came out. Yeah. <clears throat> My point being is that just like that, the interest rate story today will also change. Now, to fundamentals, uh, and I get your point. I agree with your point as I'm about to uh, dance on the other side of it. Um, but I agree with your point that fundamentals in terms of valuation never applied. But to the extent that some people tried to apply valuations and fundamentals, what they said was, don't worry about 2021 earnings or even 22 to, uh, earnings. These companies are going to look fabulous in 2023, in 2024, in 2025. Well, guess what? You know this. I know this. When we value stocks, we discount cash flows in the future back to the present day. And if you, you are to. discounting, if you're discounting cash flows in 2025 and you raise interest rates just a little bit, the effect on the present value of those cash flows is enormous. And yeah. that's why you look at Zoom, it's off 40%. That's a big hit, much bigger than the 15% that Apple is off because Apple has earnings today. It has meaningful earnings today. Zoom is not going to have earnings, at least in any uh, reasonable size, for quite some time. And those rise in interest rates hit it harder. That's what is meant by this term of long duration stocks. Um, just real side note here. I, I love when Wall Street comes up with terms that nobody's ever heard of before and acts like they've been around forever. Yes. Before two months ago, I had never heard a stock referred to as duration, which is a bond term. Maybe you have, but I just love it. No, when of course not. Nobody ever sort has. Of winks and nods and says, oh, I've been talking about duration and stocks forever. No, you haven't. Well, that's what I said when, when you know, uh, when people started just throwing around the, the uh, term TAM uh, as the total yes. addressable market, like we've been talking about this all our lives. No, we haven't. No, we haven't. No. Uh, and, and, and people dropping the, you know, uh, an acronym uh, um, of TAM. Anyway, uh, so, Jim, as you as you look uh, and let's just focus in just for one second uh, uh, on Tesla as an example. 
uh, of Tesla versus Ford. I mean, and what Tesla has to do, Tesla's still not earning any money at all, save for tax credits. If they didn't get some tax credits, they would have no earnings per share. And yet they've got a market cap much larger than Ford Motor Company. And Ford Motor Company is going to be crucified if they miss their earnings number by 10 cents a share. And, and, and Tesla keeps going up when they can't, you know, spell 10 cents a share. What, how do you describe this stage of a company's life in their evolution? When will Tesla's earnings start to matter? Amazon's earnings, I don't know that they ever mattered for years because, you know, my, I mean, you know, Bezos says, nah, don't worry about my earnings. That's not what my company's about. And for the first time in my, you know, knowledge, Wall Street believed him. I couldn't believe, I still can't believe as I look back that they believe uh, Bezos when he said, earnings don't matter for my company. Just buy it. Okay. And you know what? There's there's a degree of similarity between Tesla and Amazon in that Tesla is not just a car company, right? They want to put the solar panels on your roof. They want to use those to charge your car. And also they want the excess energy to go from the solar panels into the grid and, and help uh, you know decentralize the electric grid, which theoretically gets away from the problems in Texas last month. You know what? I'll actually lend some credence to that. But here is the point I would generally make. Won't surprise you. Tesla is a cult stock period. It's yes. a cult stock. If you are buying Tesla and you're telling me that you're doing it on valuation, I, a, a phooey, phooey. Okay. Phooey. You cannot oh, value Jim, Tesla. that sort of language this early in the morning. Gosh, I mean, sorry, <laughs> delicate listeners, but maybe you'll be listening later and you'll be not quite as shocked by a phooey. Oh my goodness. I can't believe I used it myself. Sorry, mom. All right, Jim, go ahead. I'm, I'm corrupting our youth. Yeah. Uh, in, in you, that is. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, fabulous company, but the share price is ludicrous along with the speed of its cars that you can get it to. Uh, <clears throat> I believe that the multiple of GM is it's eight times, uh, eight times its market cap. Yeah. Uh, it sells probably uh, one eighth of the vehicles uh, that GM does. Uh, this is not a company that people are buying on any sort of valuation. They're buying it on the hype, the belief of Elon Musk. That's an investment style that I do not adhere to. Some people, listen, let's call it right. what it is. They've made money, right? Those people who have yeah. bought into the Tesla hype, they have yeah. made money the last year. So I can't fault them for it. But I will tell you, you look at the stock right now, you look at the trajectory of it, you look at where interest rates are, where they're going, you look at the competition coming, not just from Ford and GM, but from BMW, Nissan, Porsche. And you have to say, Wait a second. This emperor <laughs> looks like this emperor is naked. You know, uh, Jim, there was uh, there was somebody last night uh, in Las Vegas who made a good deal of money uh, on Red 21 at the roulette wheel. Um, and perhaps that might be a strategy uh, for some. There are people and you hear about them uh, every so often who are making millions of dollars on lottery tickets. But ladies and gentlemen, Labenthal and I are not in Las Vegas and we are not. Uh, buying lottery tickets. We, we really have tried to study this business of stocks and understand the American economy and how corporations grow and shareholders see increases of value. And we try to take the risk out of this business. 
That's what we get paid to do, to try and take the risk out. And in order to take the risk out, we look at those things that have driven value over many years. We break it down into a lot of minutiae that bore the hell out of most people. And, and it's boring, and it's, and it's little wonky stuff. But you go through these numbers, you go through earnings and sales and all of these ratios, and at the end, at the end of this uh, process, you look at some of these companies and go, I don't know how they're still in business, but others you say, wow, that's a really cool company. And if I can buy it for the right price, I want to own that for a long time. My odds of making money in that company over time look awfully good to me. And I don't know what the hell goes on in Las Vegas. So this is that we, we have a different approach, but the, and it's called investing. We're investors. We're not speculators. So uh, Jim Labenthal, Tell me here, as we as we close up today, thinking about what Jay Powell said yesterday as he painted this oh, little bit of a cotton candy world where he has enough worries to stay on the sideline, let inflation run. Ha you kind of agree, you said, we're going to have inflation. It's not going to matter in the longer term. Um, and at the, all of, and the, he's promising the Fed won't blink. Markets are at 32,000 uh, here, almost 33,000 on the Dow. Uh, so what do Fred and Ethel do? What are you doing to invest, to follow those formulas I described that's going to create value longer term? Don't worry is what I do. It's what you do. And it's what I tell Fred and Ethel. I'm going to borrow your term. Don't worry. This is a garden variety risk that is measured against opportunities in the stock market over the next two years that are really quite luscious. And they're quite luscious because of the amount of stimulus, monetary and fiscal, that's in the system. They're quite luscious because of the sectors of the economy that are in the process of reopening right now, which are going to fuel earnings across the board. This is a good time to be a stock investor. And the garden variety risk of interest rates are higher than they were four months ago is an acceptable risk to put up with for that reward of what the next two years will bring. Um, I do have to just give a little more detail to the inflation slash interest rate picture, yeah. which is to say, on the one hand, we know inflation's coming. Last year's inflation numbers were rapidly depressed in the pandemic. And so the comparative numbers now are going to look much higher. We know we've got shortages in production, whether it's semiconductor chips or, or ships that are backed up uh, in yes. the port of Los Angeles. We know that. Those will work their way out. Uh, we also know that the economy is reopening, and so demand for air tickets is going to go up. We know that, and prices with it. But here's the thing to remember. We have a lot of investment that's been made in capital expenditures in corporate America that are productivity enhancing, probably the most important thing I can say. Enhancement of productivity allows quality of life to go up, for wages to go up, without inflation to go up. Uh, also, consider interest rates, 1.75 on the 10-year. What are they in Germany? I think they're about 0.4%. Okay, if you're a German investor, you're looking at, at uh, today's interest rates and saying, I want to buy U.S. Treasuries hand over fist, and that will put pressure downward on interest rates. So th these effects are going to pass. Uh, it's why I agree with Chairman Powell. Let's not wring our hands too much about the garden variety risks. Let's invest for the future uh, because, as you eloquently put, our goal is to make money while managing risk. Emphasis, yes. managing risk. And yes. you can do that nicely in today's environment. 
uh, and Jim, I, I'm just going to show you that the uh, that the Bund right now is uh, is is exactly where you uh, is is actually uh, a little bit even lower. It's uh, minus 25 basis points. Ah. We're at 175. We're at two. We're two full percentage points above Germany today. Uh, Japan is nine uh, is at nine basis points for ten years. Uh, so. It, Jim's point is absolutely, perfectly, accurately on uh, and brilliant as ever. Jim Labenthal is a partner at Serity Partners. He is a contributor, uh, long-term contributor for CNBC, the halftime report. Are you on today? Uh, I am today. I'm going to watch because you have to watch Labenthal. And as always, listen to Labenthal. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be back with Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency in Congress. Talk to him about what's going on in Washington. And then Greg Valliere is going to be with us, our old friend Greg Valliere. I first met Greg when I was a contributor on Wall Street Week with Louis Rukeyser many years ago. And Greg was the guest of the evening as I sat on that stupid sofa with Lou in his big orange chair. We will reminisce about those days and try and figure out what he thinks is going on in Washington these days when we come back on The Farcast. Please stay with us. Michael Farr and The Farcast are proud to support Heroes, Inc. Heroes supports the spouses and children of law enforcement officers and firefighters who gave their lives in the line of duty to the greater Washington, D.C. community. Their singular goal is to honor the supreme sacrifice made by these individuals by caring for their families. Heroes' work begins within 24 hours of the tragic loss and continues indefinitely. We invite you to learn more about Heroes' mission at heroes.org. We hope that you will consider supporting Heroes as they endeavor to honor those who protect us. That's heroes.org. Heroes, here for you, here for good. And now, back to the Farcast and your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast. And now, here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back. We're joined now by Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and our senior political analyst on the Farcast, season four here in the Farcast. Good morning, Dan. Good morning, Michael. Good as always to be back. Thank you. We're very glad you're here. We had a great first segment with Jim Labenthal talking about Jay Powell's interesting, delicate navigation of the uh, really minefield of markets and economic information through his uh, the release from the Fed yesterday. Also, uh, from the long Q&A that I, that I watched uh, very closely, where the Fed chairman had to come out and say, uh, yes, we're going to have inflation. Yes, we've got great growth. We don't have enough growth yet. Don't worry about inflation. We're not going to do anything about it anyway, because we're going to sit on our hands and let it run hot. We're going to let the economy run hot, and then it's all going to be fine, and don't worry about a thing. This is the right thing to do. And it looked like markets bought it, Dan, until I woke up this morning and see the 10-year Treasury at one and three-quarter percent. So, uh, while our markets bought it yesterday afternoon, maybe our friends around the world and overseas woke up uh, having had perhaps maybe one too many Guinness stouts on St. Patrick's Day, a little bit of a headache, and said, well, that doesn't make sense to us. But we'll see if this 175 holds. Did you see anything that struck you in uh, Chairman Powell's uh, remarks yesterday? 
Well, I think it's interesting to dive into some of the brief stuff on where the political impact of this may be. Look, the 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 reputation of the Fed, you have yes. inflation hawks gunning for it uh, right now. On the other hand, an entire couple generations of Americans who have never seen inflation, let alone wage inflation in their lives. Um, so these are, you know, questions I think that are interesting to see. I also think it's interesting to see um, uh, Chairman Powell laying out the uh, that uh, needle they seem to to want to thread, and I think it's been said on this show and many others: don't fight the Fed. Don't uh, fight the Fed. And Greg Valliere is coming up. I was reading Greg this morning, and he says, you know, Americans are going to be fine with a little inflation too. We're so eager to get back into the into the stream, back into the economy, back into uh, restaurants and everywhere else. You know, you you listen to people talk about the economy, Dan, just as a quick sidebar. And it sounds like all we do is eat over here because the one thing that everybody says is we want to go back to restaurants. That's that's like the number one thing, which is good because I can't imagine everybody wants to go back to Walmart all that enthusiastically. But restaurants seem to be the the, the dangerous place that's been identified. Anyway, we will see where those rates settle in today. Those rates are important to markets. We're going to watch. Also yesterday, Dan, we saw Catherine Tai. Catherine Tai was confirmed by the Senate in a 98 to 0 vote, unanimous vote as the U.S. trade representative. Uh, tell us about Catherine Tai, will you? And how did she get 98 votes to 0? Well, Catherine Tai is, a, a, first of all, a very smart, very pragmatic woman. Uh, Ms. Tai has got a great reputation from her time working on the ha- staff of the House Ways and Means Committee. Uh, she was known as a straight shooter who served as an interlocutor between House Democrats and the Trump administration during the NAFTA 2.0 USMCA, whatever we want to call that now. Um, she served as a, a as a key figure in those negotiations. So she has a good reputation on both sides of the aisle, experience on the Hill as well as in private practice. Um And she's also had a career very focused, not just on uh, her time on the Hill, but previously when she was in the Obama administration, a lot of that was focused on trade enforcement with China. So she is um, a focused on that. Her parents are uh, immigrated to uh, the United States from China uh, via Taiwan. She's a native uh, Mandarin speaker. So okay, she's so has- hang on, hang on, hang on. So, so first, you're telling me she's a she's a fair and honest broker. She's seen that way on Capitol Hill, right? Correct. Yes. Are you also and and you're also telling me that she's that that her parents are Chinese immigrants and she's first generation U.S. Uh, and then uh, it, it, very bright. And, and Harry put in my notes, Harry put in my notes that she went to Sidwell Friends School. Um, she then uh, managed to talk her way into Yale and then Harvard. Uh, a lot of really? underperformers. Yeah, no, there are no yeah. Georgetowns, but we'll, we'll, we'll let that go. No Georgetown. Well, she probably couldn't get into Georgetown, had to go to Yale instead. Who doesn't, you know, have to deal with that? Uh, a lot of people couldn't get into Sewanee, uh, who ended up at Yale and Harvard, too. It's stunning. Impressive. Yeah, 47 years old. So this uh, brilliant woman uh, grew up in Washington, D.C., of Chinese, uh, close Chinese descent, is a China hawk, is my point here. She's a China hawk. Why? And tell me how, how that happens. And Dan, you lived in China. Uh, you studied in China. You also speak Mandarin. What does this mean culturally to the Chinese to have 
a Chinese American who can speak Mandarin, who's over there representing American causes against the Chinese. Well, I, I think, look, first and foremost, her resume is an important reminder at a time when many Asian Americans are are seen as as other or a threat or face violence. You know, we've seen those examples over the past year. And what her story is, is I think, too, of, a, of an immigrant family and, and how American values and immigrant family values combine together into a career of public service and and service to this country and its interests. Uh, on two, being a, a Mandarin speaker and being of a, of American Chinese descent, that kind of changes the mindset. The Chinese officials sort of have a hard time understanding why someone of a of an ethnicity tends to align with their their nation rather than the the Middle Kingdom or the civilization. That's always kind of been in their in their mindset. So that'll be an interesting dynamic to consider. But. It's, it shows a very focused yep. USTR, and not to take away from the, the former USTR, Lighthizer, and, and his job done, uh, but also a very focused on China uh, person for that role, complementing the other security and diplomatic and intelligence officials who are increasingly focused on China as well. Lighthizer, uh, Bob Lighthizer, by the way, uh, who is a long-term friend of mine, I, I still say that notwithstanding, and that's not clouding my judgment, I think was uh, my affection for him, not clouding my judgment, was one of the most successful members of the Trump administration period in advancing the U.S.'s agenda, carrying out his job and staying out of the political fray. I mean, he really stood up to China consistently. He did it quietly and, and really was one of my heroes in that agenda. Uh, I mean, in, in, in uh, the Trump administration pursuing the agenda. And, and he was not a guy you saw on TV. He was not a guy who was getting wrestled or called in or yelled at by the president. Got the job done. And, and we didn't get to hear too much noise about him. I thought it was brilliant. No, and that's one of the things uh, Josh Rogan, who's a, a great author, has a book about Trump and Xi out called Chaos Under Heaven. I had a chance to speak to him yesterday during a book event. I highly recommend it. We, uh, we Josh Rogan, you did? Josh Rogan, yeah. And yeah, his book yeah. looks at the Trump-Xi relationship and, and others in the administration like Lighthizer and where that... Uh, Lighthizer did a very good job of keeping his head down and running his agenda despite the the tempest that could come from 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Yes. That, that was one of those key examples. And uh, Josh Rogan talks about many of these other examples in his book. I, I recommend it. Uh, but the you know the thing we're seeing in, in the longer run is the the Biden administration is picking up the baton from the Trump administration on China. Uh, as much as there was the November talk of Beijing Biden, uh, they've taken a lot of the things, you know, we'll see, again, tough decisions have to be made on climate, on future pandemic cooperation. There are areas where we'll have to make tough choices, and they haven't gotten to those yet. Ladies and gentlemen, that. let me just give you a quick, my, my quick take uh, here on, on China. I've tried to say this at various forecasts in the past, but uh, China is, a, is a, um, one of the most uh, I guess, egocentric, um, narcissistic countries in the world. In the, and they are concerned um, for their self-interests uh, and pretty much nobody else's. And they will be polite as a country in negotiating. And uh, they may or may not honor uh, any of their agreements. And they will pursue 
uh, China first policy in all things at all times. And they have done so uh, in the violation of a lot of laws. Um, they have stolen our technology. They don't give a damn about our copyrights. They don't care about intellectual property. They don't care about patents. They care about China. And as soon as they get it, it then becomes Chinese. And you're barking up a tree, complain, crying foul. And you're crying foul uh, according to rules of your game that they don't care about. And this has gone on for years. We've nipped at their heels here and there. But when you have uh, an opponent who doesn't care to play by the rules at all, um, it's very hard to stand a chance. And we're trying to get a lot of this back in the bottle. Uh, and it's very hard uh, to get China to play by global rules when they don't have any real respect for them at all. Their only rule is China. So here we have, the, so President Trump, this was one of the things that he did that I was at my 100% support. Uh, we had to really address these imbalances with China. His trade tariffs made a lot of sense. They were a very blunt tool for a very large problem. And I don't know that we've thought about any real other better tools um, because I can't imagine getting China to agree um, yeah. to, 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 to some well, sort of international governance. But can Catherine Tai, I mean, how big a job, how hard is this going to be for Catherine Tai? And, and, and is China in a more difficult position when she walks in and speaks Mandarin and, 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 and looks like them. There's always an advantage to being able to speak your and understand the culture of your, uh, your, your counterparty in a negotiation. She's going to have an advantage there, and I think it will put the, uh, the Chinese at a, in a different position than any other previous negotiator. Some of those tools, though, you talk about, the tariffs, and, and I think what we'll see the Biden administration do is, one, make this more institutionalized. It's going to be less about tweets and more about CFIUS reviews and investment processes and rules and, and regulations. Uh, two, I think you'll also see, look, You mean there are going to be a lot of little changes and nothing big that's headline grabbing. And will those be enough to make a difference? No, it will build on things like we we reformed the CFIUS process in 2018 to look at... What's the at CFIUS process, Dan? Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. So that was Committee expanded. on Foreign Investment in the United States, CFIUS. Right. Got it. Go ahead. Right. That was expanded to allow for a greater review. Look, it even allowed... At one point, we had the, the Chinese tried to buy the dating app Bumble and were rejected from doing so because of personal information. That was a newer example of things we were focused on over the past couple of years that actually matter. Some of the tariffs on iron, aluminum, agricultural products, that's not the crux of the competition. Is it good politics here in, in the U.S.? Perhaps. A lot more of this, though, is going to be on semiconductors, advanced technologies. That's where the, the true competition is going to be. And the challenge is managing that interdependence in so much of a global, globalized, commoditized economy, while at the same time separating in those high technologies. And uh, Catherine Tai will have the the trade portfolio of that. That is going to be very difficult. But you're going to also have to have who's handling, you know, uh, Blinken and Sullivan handling the the, diplom the diplomatic and national security portfolios. These come together as a mixture. It's a mixture of security, economic interests, and technological competition. And you have to combine these factors together with your other interests like human rights and international stability. And that's the thing is it, it coordinating a China policy is nearly an all of government 
exercise when you think about yes. it. And the, yes. the Trump administration rightly identified that challenge. Now the Biden administration is building the, you know, using the tools of government that we have, rebuilding them, the relationships with allies to, to position this. Biden calls it extreme competition with China. That's what he's called it. That what we're yeah. on the what we're on the path of is extreme competition. How we go, and again, getting from where you change tack in a, in a midnight tweet to a long-term strategy, that's the crux now. And, and I think, too, uh, Biden has an opportunity because you have allied capitals, you have a bipartisan consensus on Congress. Uh, addressing Beijing and the Chinese Communist Party, I think, is one thing where we're actually truly starting to, to show some signs of unity on. You know, you said that the China agenda is really the all U.S. government, uh, all U.S. government uh, policy, um, and, and I, I think that's exactly exactly right. Um, we talked with uh, Nilu Hao, uh, who is very involved in national security in this country. She has said that probably the biggest Cold War race, the biggest threat. Uh, that's going on right now is the race towards quantum computing, this right. amazingly fast and powerful com computing that will break down every password. Nothing can stand right. against this level of quantum computing. And China is really racing uh, in this technology. So uh, trying to figure out how we deal with China and how you limit China's power and thievery or whatever you want to say is still uh, an imperative. And we're having side effects. I mean, we are seeing problems in the supply chain. We have become reliant on a lot of Chinese cheap uh, parts, driven in large part by Chinese cheap labor, uh, for pharmaceuticals, for semiconductor chips, for a lot of things that are affecting our economy dramatically. And the Biden administration is saying uh, it, it doesn't sound as protectionist when they say it, but we need to establish our own supply chains away from China. And we need those processes. I don't know that they're saying we need them here in the United States. It's politically uh, easy for them to say that. But uh, this is a big deal. And if we want to see something that's really going to change the face of America and the global economy, watch this relationship with China. I'm very encouraged to have Catherine Tai in this position, uh, Dan. Uh, you? I am, and I, I think the it's encouraging. I think a lot of these moves are encouraging. A lot of what I hear on the Hill is yes. encouraging. Um, I think the the next big challenge is, you know, not only have you you described well the the duplicity of the Communist Party, how Beijing works. Uh, the challenge is there's a lot of Americans, Australians, European business leaders who were fine with that for the sake of their balance sheet. And that's yes. the, the longer term unwinding and the the networks of capital and influence that the that Beijing has uh, in Wall Street, in Europe, in very key areas will be another area where tough decisions and conversations about investments, investment policy and finance will, will be had as well. Chinese, the Chinese Machiavellian end justifies the Chinese Machiavellian means. Uh, that's a very dangerous situation for us, and it's important we're addressing it. Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress and the senior political analyst on the Farcast. Thank you so much. Great again to see you this week. We're going to be back with Greg Valliere. 
uh, one of our oldest friends on the far crest. Um, and we're going to talk politics in Washington from a different angle with Greg, where he thinks the economic outcomes will develop from the Fed's policy and what's going on with all of the spending when we come back on the Farcast. Thank you for joining us on this week's Farcast. We'd like to invite you to follow Michael on Twitter and LinkedIn. On his social media feed, you'll find links to all of Michael's media appearances, articles he's been quoted in in such newspapers as the Wall Street Journal and Washington Post, and of course, the Farcast. Additionally, Michael shares some of the articles we are reading at Farm Miller in Washington every morning that we feel have bearing on the investing landscape. That's Michael underscore K underscore Farr on Twitter and Michael Farr on LinkedIn. And now, back to Michael and the Farcast. Thank you for joining us on the Farcast. And now, back to your host, Michael Farr. We're back. Thanks so much for being with us again this week on the Farcast, March the 18th, 2021. We're coming here, believe it or not, ladies and gentlemen, to the end of the first quarter here in 2021. Nothing really has blown up on us. The world has continued to spin on its access, I think, still in the same direction. Uh, Jay Powell spoke yesterday and told us all not to worry about anything. We're going to have a surge of inflation, but that doesn't bother him. We're going to have a, a kind of a hot economy and perhaps a 6% plus growth rate in GDP. Don't worry about that. In fact, according to Chairman Powell, nothing to worry about at all. Uh, which uh, seemed to satisfy markets at the time yesterday, but not so much overnight. Perhaps that little bit of a Guinness uh, stout hangover here on March the 18th is affecting some of traders who woke up a little too early this morning. Now, ladies and gentlemen, joining us is one of our Farcast fan favorites and one of the nicest and brightest most insightful, articulate guys I've ever known in this business, and we've known one another for probably three decades or more. Greg Valliere is chief U.S. policy strategist at AGF Investments. It's a Canadian investment firm. He's been there uh, for a while. He covers the Fed. He covers Washington. If you need to know how Washington policy, one, is going to evolve, and two, is going to affect Wall Street, you need to talk to Greg Valliere. Welcome back, Greg. Thank you for the kind words. I don't like it when people set the bar real high, which would you have done. But uh, great as always, as always, Michael, great to see you. It is wonderful to be with you again. And uh, thank you. Uh, I, I haven't seen you really in a year with COVID and everything else, but uh, I read you are the one person I read every, absolutely every day. And you have gotten me through the last year of all of this political maelstrom and turmoil. Uh, it has been terrific and always grounded and always sensible, Greg. You do such a good job. Thank you. Um, I, I was reading your note this morning, Greg. Give us first your broad view of the economy. Uh, were you persuaded by Chairman Powell yesterday? Well, I'm a big fan of his. I think he's done a very good job. Uh, I think that he does have one thing that I can't quite figure out, and that is their new forecast, Michael, shows unemployment getting to 4.5 by the end of this year and getting to 3.5 next year. 
that is full employment. So if we're in a situation of full employment, how can they say they're not going to raise rates or, or perhaps even think about uh, changing their uh, asset purchases? It, it doesn't seem consistent. And I would even extend this and say that in many sectors of the U.S. economy, we have a, a worker shortage now, yes. uh, whether it's uh, housing or shipping or tech. There are areas now where we've run out of skilled labor. And I think that the Fed has to be a little more concerned about it. You know, you and I had a dear, dear friend, Lyle Gramley, former Fed yes. governor, one of the great uh, gentlemen that I've ever worked with, include, as well as you, of course. But Lyle used to always say, <laughs> The one inflation that you have to worry about is wage inflation. It, that can become intractable. Food inflation, fuel inflation, that's transitory. Wage inflation is a could be a problem. And I think that perhaps the Fed uh, chairman is a little too dismissive of that threat. Let's talk through this just a, a little bit. If we go back uh, a year ago, or let's go back 13 months ago, pre-COVID, unemployment was around three and a half percent. And we were indeed beginning to see some inflation in wages, which, Greg, I took as a good thing because we've had such wealth and income disparity that all of the stimulus and all of the liquidity that was out there in the markets was, uh, was finding no velocity. There was no velocity to all of the money out there. I argued that it was because it wasn't getting into the hands that would spend it. And uh, so a little bit of wage inflation across the broad economy, the middle class and lower middle class, uh, the real spenders uh, in the U.S., uh, I thought was a good thing for, for organic, organic growth uh, to get us away from all of this stimulus stuff. So let's, let's fast forward. If we get there again, um, I still see there will be a good part of some of that wage inflation but wage inflation has to get passed on. That's one of those, as you say, that's intractable. Employers are going to pass that on in the ultimate price of those end products, goods and services. Is, was that Lyle Gramley's point? Uh, and, and when he says intractable, I mean, is it a slow moving sort of a bar or, or is this something that can really take off? It could take off, Michael. I think that you, if you pass along uh, higher prices because you're paying your workers more, that could have a snowballing effect. In fact, you, you, you could make an argument that all of the medicine we've given the economy in the last year, maybe $6 trillion in uh, uh, fiscal policy. Medicine is one thing, but you don't want to overdose. And I, I would argue that maybe we've done too much uh, medicine and that this snowballing effect will really have an impact as we get toward the, the, the end of the year. All right. So I'm going to, the two things that strike me in the past, we've sort of said, well, some economists have suggested that we have global access to labor. Now we can outsource so many things. We can buy so many things from China at such cheap prices that we can sort of put a lid on our wage inflation. Maybe we were talking with Dan Mahaffey uh, earlier about uh, Catherine Tai, this uh, new uh, U.S. trade representative. Brilliant. Brilliant. Oh, my yeah. goodness. Uh, yeah. Sidwell Friends School in Washington, Yale University, mm -hmm. Harvard University, speaks fluent Mandarin. I mean, this is a, this is a powerhouse who is a hawkish on China. 
is it going to be as easy to outsource labor and can you do it in such a way that it eases any of the stress or tension or inelasticity of U.S. labor markets? Well, I think there's going to be problems with China, first of all. We, uh, U.S. officials are meeting today in Alaska with their Chinese counterparts. Uh, I would be shocked if there's any kind of breakthrough. Uh, I'd be surprised if they announce that uh, Biden and Xi will meet anytime soon. I think this will be a pretty, uh, uh, will be pretty rocky. No, I think we're going to have to rely more on U.S. production. Uh, you talk to people on Capitol Hill, and that's a dominant theme, that we have to spend more money to uh, build factories here, not rely on China for masks, for medical goods, things like that. But if you do it here, I think it'll be more expensive. Do you hear this as protectionism or do you hear this as defending the U.S.'s interests? I think it's the latter. I think a lot of people in both parties, uh, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, have all agreed that we have become too reliant on these products from countries like China. And we're gonna to have to beef up our production here. Uh, so no, I, I think it's a bipartisan view in Congress that we have to do more. Greg, when we look at GDP growth, the classic GDP growth formula is increase in the workforce, increase in labor, plus increase in productivity. And when you look at the US population with three tenths of a percent growth in the U.S. population. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, three years uh, will have 1% growth organically of people having babies in the U.S. Uh, so we don't have much to add from that side of this equation. Uh, and in terms of productivity, we've seen precious little. So yeah. Greg, most uh, a lot of the big economists, Dr. Jay Bryson uh, from Wells Fargo has been on, and they expect that uh, three years out, Anyway, we're going to be right back to that 2% GDP number if, and now here I'm bringing it back to you, if we go to that 2% GDP number and see wage inflation, which you point out, while Gramley said was intractable, does that get to stagflation? I mean, the very little growth, but all of a sudden inflation and wages and prices? I think there are things that can be done to avoid that. Uh, one thing, Michael, I would argue is that we need more skilled immigrants coming yes, into the country. Have I, to. Think, I think, you know, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole of the long, long discourse on productivity, but I think a key element of productivity is more people coming into this country. Uh, under the Trump administration, I think he didn't. Uh, differentiate between unskilled labor and skilled labor. We need both, but especially skilled labor. Well, and uh, the, I understand that illegal immigration is, uh, is something clearly we don't want, and it can be very expensive. As an economist, you kind of just want workers. You just need people there making those donuts. Um, now there's a higher cost perhaps of an illegal immigrant, but most economists are gonna say, I just need some workers in there making those donuts. Um, <laughs> what sort of immigration, how would you change immigration policy, Greg? Well, I think we would, I, I would look at countries where there are we have plenty of skilled workers who would love to come here. You look at India, for example, uh, for the tech industry. I think that would be a, a big plus. But I would argue even unskilled labor is, is becoming short. Uh, I think that 
well, Joe Biden's next big crisis, in my opinion, is immigration, Ill illegal immigration. And he said yesterday, don't come here, not at least not right now. Don't come right. here. So th th there's a huge problem that has to be ironed out. And uh, on the on the right and on the left, there are proposals that I think will have a hard time making it. So that that has to be addressed before we can say we've got a lot of uh, skilled labor coming in. But I think that's one thing that would help. I think I think some tax reform would help. I think the um, the child tax credit uh, could alleviate a lot of poverty. I do worry, though, Michael, that one point nine trillion that we just got had an awful lot in it that had nothing to do with covid, had little to do with the economy. Do you really we spent eighty six billion, uh, sixty eight billion on pension funds, yeah. pensions that were poorly managed? There's a lot in that bill to me that is not relevant. Let's let's just look at a couple of those bills, because and, and, and I want to keep this uh, very consistent. Uh, we're saying that we could see this resurgence in the U.S. economy. We're seeing the projections for unemployment to go to full employment. We can see some yeah. wage inflation. Let's look at the money now that's been uh, put into the economy. Nine hundred billion dollars in December, one point nine trillion dollars. Now, I can't believe I'm saying these figures out yeah. loud. $2.8 trillion into a $22 trillion economy that already received almost six or seven trillion in 2020 in the previous year. Yeah. Um, and, and there's still discussions, Greg, that we're going to get another bill. Maybe it's infrastructure. May, I don't know what, what, how, uh, uh, and that there's going to be a, they're going to go ahead and, and use that. Some Republicans I've talked to are calling it the nuclear second reconciliation yeah option. They really are trying to fight this second option for reconciliation. What does all of that stimulus going into the economy mean to you? It, it means that maybe we're going to overdo it. Uh, I understand that Janet Yellen keeps saying we're going to go big. You know, Powell has said that as well. And, and I understand that, that maybe we didn't do enough in the Obama administration when he, he came into power in an economic crisis. Right. But I think that this it runs the risk of being far too expensive, largely because we have to worry about two things. Number one is debt servicing costs. And the, the, the mantra was, don't worry about debt servicing costs. Interest Still rates is. are rock bottom. Well, all of a sudden now, the Treasury 10-year bond yield is at 1.8 this morning. So rates have gone up dramatically. The other part of this very sanguine scenario that I would uh, differ with is that we're all getting older. There's a demographic issue here. And as we, as we go to the latter parts of this decade, there's going to be a huge burden, Social Security, Medicare, all sorts of pensions. And I, I think that you could really overdo it and exacerbate problems like the aging of, of the country. So it, what are the odds that we're going to see another significant spending bill in 2021 from your perch in D.C.? I think we'll get one. I, I, they've got one more opportunity to use this reconciliation process that allows them to get something with just 50 votes. Now, that premise means you've got to get all 50 Democrats, and there's a couple who might waver if it's a huge bill. Uh, people are talking about $2 trillion, Some are talking about $3 trillion. It's important to note that would be over 10 years. It would not be immediate. 
right. and it would be largely you know green infrastructure you know fun gas stations that it, you can put put in electrical outlets for your electric car and there's all sorts of stuff retrofitting buildings things like that there's lots of stuff that would be in this infrastructure bill i think we'll get it i'm on the low side i think two trillion would be uh, the most uh, i think the other part of the story that landed with a thud this week is any talk about big new taxes. I think that's increasingly unlikely. Zero Republicans will support it. And I think there's a handful of Democrats like Joe Manchin of West Virginia who'd be very leery about a big tax hike. So if if we get something, there's going to be a long, bitter, drawn out battle uh, accompanying uh, infrastructure, and that battle will be on taxes. So you're worrying me. I, I'm 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 worried a little bit more after talking with you about inflation and the prospects for inflation, given the amount of stimulus so far, and perhaps another bill being passed this year. But looking at the stock market, I'm thinking, man, this sounds dreamy. I got to th- th- this thing has only it's got to be inflated. I mean, I've got to own stocks, don't I? What else can I own? How can I protect myself against the inflation? I mean, stocks are one of those assets that typically go up during these periods. What else can I do? Fred and Ethel are sitting and listening to us, Greg, <laughs> right. and they're saying, what do I do with my account now that I'm 62? Well, I'll tell you one thing, Michael, and that is there is one enormous bubble in this country, and that, of course, is housing. Everyone I talk to in many parts of the country tell me that if they see a house they want to buy, they have to offer more than the asking price. That's that's dominant throughout the entire country. I think housing is going to stay red hot. I mean, even with the Treasury 10-year bond yield at 1.8, that's pretty damn low. And, And mortgage rates are still very, very affordable. And there's a shortage, a a severe shortage of supply of inventory of houses. So I think I think for Fred and Ethel, anybody, regardless of their age, housing still, in my opinion, is a very sound investment. Still very sound. And, And what about the stock market, Greg, U.S. stock market? Yeah, I, I, I defer to you. You're the you're the guru. You're the guru uh, on all of this, Michael. You you're you're way way above my uh, pay grade on this. But I, I I would say that the fundamentals still look awfully good. I think by summer, everyone who wants a shot will have had a shot. Yes. I think that interest rates will still be relatively low. Yes. I think this economy could be growing at six, seven, eight uh, percent really? for the rest yeah. for, for the rest of the year. So you you have to respect those fundamentals. Down the road, though, when I look at 2022, I do start to see some problems. And the main one, as we discussed, could be inflation. Greg Valliere is one of the brightest minds you're ever going to talk to anywhere on Wall Street. He is the chief U.S. policy strategist for AGF Investments uh, and a great friend. The first time I think uh, I ever uh, appeared with you, Greg, was uh, on Wall Street week uh, yeah. as Lou was in his big orange chair and I was yeah. over on the sofa as a contributor for Wall Street week. Yeah. It is a great memory of, of mine. And even then, ladies and gentlemen, when Louis Rukeyser wanted to understand what was going on in Washington and its impacts on Wall Street, he turned to Greg Valliere. And after listening today, I'm sure you all understand why. Greg, thanks so much for being with us on the Farcast. Thank you. You're way too kind. I enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun, Michael. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it for another Farcast this week. We will be back again next week, bringing you insights from Wall Street, Washington, and the world. 
in Naples, Florida. I'm Michael Farr. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for being with us on this week's edition of the Farcast, and thanks to Michael's guests, Jim Labenthal, Dan Mahaffey, and special guest, Greg Valliere. We love hearing from you every week, and we try to respond to all of your notes, suggestions, and questions. You can reach us at hjennings at farmiller.com. Let us know any questions you have and topics you'd like to hear us cover in coming weeks. The Farcast comes to you weekly and is produced by Michael Farr and Harry Jennings and is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and all major podcast platforms. We would like to remind you that the Farcast podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal or financial advice. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions expressed or provided in this podcast, including by speakers who are not officers, employees, or agents of Farr Miller and Washington, are not necessarily those of Farr Miller and Washington or any firm any of our guests may represent. Any mention of a specific security should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell, and please be aware that past performance is not a guide to the future performance of any security, index, fund, manager, or strategy. We strongly recommend you review with a financial professional before you make any investment decision. And if we can be of assistance at Farm Miller in Washington, please reach out to me at hjennings at farmmiller.com. We are here to help, and I'll be happy to put any of our listeners in touch with one of our investment professionals for a complimentary review of your portfolio and your investment goals. Take care, stay safe, and stay healthy. We will be back with you next week. Go beyond the headlines each week with the Farcast, Wall Street, Washington, and the world.